All right, so that story is actually one of the stories of the institution of a sacrament. Do you know which sacrament? The one that I read. Yeah, reconciliation, right? He, Jesus on the day, first day of the week, uh, um, after his resurrection, he breathes on his disciples after he appears to them and says, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. He's talking to the 12 apostles. Well, 11 at that time because Judas is gone. But... Um, a sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ to give us grace. Is that true or false? True. True. Very good. That's basically the definition of a sacrament. A visible sign instituted by Christ to give us grace. How many are there? Seven. Very good. So this should be kind of basic grade school catechism stuff that you learned. But hopefully today we'll go a little bit deeper. Um, the first one we talked about how to pray. Um, last time we talked about who Jesus is and how he saves us. And this is kind of um, more into, like, okay, I get on a global scale how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection saves humanity, but how in particular does, he, does that save me? And the answer to that is the sacraments. That's how you become part of Jesus' death and resurrection, is by receiving the sacraments. So it's important to understand them. First thing you have to understand before you get to sacraments, though, is just basic signs and symbols, what it means um, to speak or to communicate in signs and symbols. So basically, we are physical beings and social beings, meaning we have bodies uh, and senses, and we're also social, and we group up and want to communicate with one another. Okay, so we, we have to communicate in ways that are physical, that are sensible, that you can see and touch and hear. And um, those are called signs and symbols. I can't, in other words, just telepathically know what Enrique is thinking. He can't just have a thought and communicate it in an unmediated way immediately to me. He He has a thought, then he has to figure out some way to symbolize it or signify it to me, whether through words he speaks or write it down on a page or make a gesture. But I can't just know what he's thinking without him giving me some sign. Does that make sense? So that's why we have to have signs. So basically what we're saying is that when God speaks to us in sacraments or communicates himself in sacraments, so he's communicating on our level as human beings, as social, physical beings. But there's a difference between a sign and a symbol. A sign is like this road sign. It means something. It points to something else. It itself is not the thing. What is this sign talking about? It's a windy road, right? Up ahead, there's a windy road. It's just pointing to a fact, something in reality that's just like, heads up, windy road's coming up. But that sign itself is not a windy road, obviously. The quarter, on the other hand, is not just a sign, but it's a symbol. In that, what is it, what is it a sign of, or what is it a symbol of? Not a trick question. <laughs> 25 cents, right? It symbolizes money. But it also is money, isn't it? If I give you that quarter, it symbolizes the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. government and all the rest of it that's backing up the fact that this is legal tender and it's valuable and it's, you know, it is, we've all agreed upon that this is worth something. But it also carries with it the thing itself, the meaning itself. So if I give you that quarter, you then have the meaning. You have the 25 cents. Does that make sense? No pun intended. Matt. Um, 
Okay, so there's, there's uh, degrees of this. There are signs that are simply pointing to something else, like the golden arches means to me, it evokes in my mind, ah, you know, french fries and, and uh, McDoubles, right? But they, I can't eat the golden arches, right? But, the, but there are certain things that are symbolic. And also not just physical objects, but words can be symbolic. They can carry meaning, right? I could say, um, Nicole, you're under arrest, right? And that I, I'm not a police officer, so I'm just stating a fact. Like, either you are under arrest or you're not. I don't know. But I can't make you under arrest. But if a police officer came in here and said, Nicole, you're under arrest, you have the right to remain silent, his words, because he has authority, are symbolic in the fact that they carry that meaning and change reality. And you actually become under arrest. Or it's the same thing with an umpire in baseball. It says you're out. It doesn't matter what 30,000 people in Wrigley Field think. It's what that guy says is symbolic. It's the, one, it's the thing that carries meaning. So to understand the sacramental economy or the sacramental um, way of life that is, is the way that, that God communicates himself through the church, you have to understand basic sort of philosophy or linguistics around signs and symbols. Okay, so then what is a sacrament? It's, as we said, a visible sign instituted by Christ to give grace. This is the catechism definition. CCC, do you know what that stands for? At the end of uh, the quote there? Catechism of the Catholic Church. Do you, do you, have you ever seen that book? It's a big, big book. It's, the one I have is green, but not all of them are green. But It was written in the uh, early 90s by um, the Catholic Church. The Vatican put it out. And it's basically the textbook on all Catholic doctrine. So you can look up in the back, sacraments, or if you want to know a particular one, baptism, and it'll tell you exactly what the Catholic Church teaches on that thing. So this is from Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1084. The sacraments are perceptible signs, words, and actions accessible to our human nature. By the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, they make present efficaciously the grace that they signify. Just a complicated way of saying it's a visible sign of something invisible, particularly the grace of Christ. Okay, because Christ died and rose from the dead and sent his Holy Spirit into the church, now, this is the way he's communicated to our human nature. His divinity is given to us through signs and symbols instituted by him that give us grace, that unite us to him. So I use this phrase, the sacramental economy. It's kind of a, a little bit of a buzzword or jargon. It just basically means um, how God gets to us. So God, it's a problem, right? God is invisible. He's everywhere. I know he's around me. He's here right in this room right now with us. But I can't see him. And so in order to reveal himself to us, he becomes visible. He becomes sensible in Jesus, right? And that's what we talked about last time, the incarnation. God becomes man because he couldn't give us a hug unless he had arms, right? It's, it's really kind of, that sounds sentimental, but that's how badly God wanted to be with us is that he became one of us so that we could see him and he could see us. But Christ is invisible. My three-year-old niece once told me that. She goes, did you know that Jesus and God are invisible? I said, yeah, I know, but they're real. She goes, I know. And my neighbor thinks Jesus isn't alive, and he stole Tom's scooter. I was like, see, that's what happens when you don't believe in Jesus. Okay, but Jesus is invisible, except in the church. 
Right? Jesus told the apostles, Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So Jesus is in the church. Do you remember the story when um, Saul, who later became St. Paul, was persecuting the church and trying to kill Christians? And he was on the way to Damascus, and he had a letter from the chief priests in Jerusalem with permission to jail and imprison anybody who believed in Christ. And on his way to Damascus, this story, by the way, appears three times in the Acts of the Apostles. It was so important to Paul and to the church. And he experienced the risen Jesus. Jesus knocked him down and blinded him. He, he was able to see Jesus there on the way, on the road. And Jesus said to him, what? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why is that important that he said it that way? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my friends? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? So Jesus, from the very beginning, is identifying himself with his disciples, with the church. Okay, so the church is the visible sign of Jesus. The church is the Ur sacrament. It's the fundamental sacrament. Without that sacrament, you can't have the seven. But the church is the revelation of Jesus. But the church is invisible too, isn't it? In a certain way. Because the church is not a building. It's not the Vatican. It's not the Pope. The church is all of us, the body of Christ. But we are invisible until we become visible in the sacraments, like at Mass. That's when the church becomes visible. You can say like, ah, that's the church. They're all worshiping God through, in, with, and uh, in Jesus, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, praising the Father. That's what the church is. The saints in heaven and the saints on earth. Okay, so the sacramental economy is just that. God gets visible. God becomes edible in the Eucharist, right? It's, it's that kind of earthy and real. Does that make sense? It's also important that they're instituted by Christ. And there's seven that were instituted by Christ because God can become visible through the church in lots of different ways, right? He says, whatever you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. So the poor are the visible Christ. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. The church worshiping is a visible sign of Christ. But the sacraments were these seven moments instituted by Christ. So they're grouped by three sacraments of initiation or baptism, confirmation in the Eucharist. The sacraments of healing, or reconciliation, or confession, and anointing of the sick. And the sacraments of vocation, or calling, are marriage and holy orders, or the priesthood. What makes the sacrament? This is kind of a cool picture, by the way. Do you know what this is? Mark, you might know. Yeah, this is uh, Eastern Orthodox. Um, yeah, so these, these are not... Catholic, although there are Eastern Catholic um, sacraments. So the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church would be the two um, sacramental churches. So the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago split from the Catholic Church, uh, the Western Catholic Church, and basically said there are two sacraments, Eucharist and baptism, but they're not the way that we believe sacraments mediate the actual Christ. So they would say that the, the Eucharist is not the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It's just a reminder or a sign of Jesus. We believe that it it's actually carries with it Jesus' own essence or substance. But the Orthodox Church has the Eucharist, but they, they give it a little differently. So what's different about this Eucharist than your experience? It's like they give you water and it's Well, it's both. The, it's not water, but it, it's the, the blood and the body. So you can kind of see it floating in the chalice. There's chunks of bread. 
So it's all consecrated. It's all put into one chalice, the wine and the, the bread, and consecrated, and then spooned out to the people so that you receive both the body and blood in the same. So you, you're like kind of a baby bird. You just kind of <laughs> open it up, and you don't, the priest says all the prayers. You don't say amen or anything because you just have your mouth open, and he just dumps it in. It's kind of beautiful, actually. What else is different about that picture? You wouldn't see this in a Catholic church. It's a baby, right? We, you have to be seven to receive the Eucharist in the Catholic church, but the, the Eastern rites um, give it right away. As soon as you're baptized, you should receive the Eucharist, which is, to me, kind of interesting. It's a cute baby, too. So the sacraments have matter and form. <clears throat> what do you think that means? There's two elements to every sacrament. What would matter be? The stuff, right? So in the Eucharist, what is the matter? Bread and wine. Simple. So can I use pizza and lemonade and consecrate that, make that the body and blood of Christ? No. Jesus instituted it with a certain kind of matter. What about baptism? What's the matter? Water. Has to be water. Can it be cow fat or lemonade? No, right? It has to be water because that's how Jesus instituted it. Okay, so what, what about form? Yeah, so the formulas, the words, the, what, what the priest says over the bread and wine, the consecration, the, the Eucharistic prayer, that's the form of the, of the sacrament. So you need both. I can't just say the prayer without the matter and have it become the Eucharist. I can't just have the matter and whatever form I want and make up some prayer. It has to be both matter and form in order to be what we call a valid sacrament. But if I do have both matter and form, it is a valid sacrament. Whether you believe it or not. I remember there was, I saw on Facebook many, many years ago when Facebook first came out, was, uh, a person was taking pictures of a wedding in the back of church, and uh, she had captioned this photo, uh, if they're not going to let me eat one of those crackers, I'm going to sit back here and take pictures. So what she was saying was that she's not Catholic, and so she, uh, and she was told that only Catholics are supposed to receive communion in the Catholic Church uh, because of what we believe about the Eucharist, that it's the body of Christ. And so, you, you know, you can come up to get a blessing or whatever. But she didn't want to do that, so she just rebelliously sat back there and took pictures during communion and then wrote this kind of snarky thing. If I can't receive one of those crackers, I'm going to sit here back here and take pictures. Well, just because she thinks it's a cracker and not Jesus, does that change it at all? No, it either is the thing or it's not the thing. It's not our faith necessarily, our own subjective experience that makes it Jesus. But nevertheless, my own subjective experience does matter. Like I, My own faith does affect whether this sacrament has an effect on me, whether I actually am changed by it. Because what, what happens in the sacraments is that you get sacramental grace. So you asked Mark during the quiz, what do I mean by grace? What is grace? Very good, yeah, there you go. Grace is God's gift that helps us to grow closer to him and to follow his commandments. That's, that's a simple way of understanding. It's, it's just God's gift to, to live the Christian life. When do, when do you first get sacramental or sanctifying grace? Your baptism. There's, there's arguments, though, that you, even before you're baptized, you have prevenient grace, which just means grace before, comes, coming before, like... God's grace is, is infinite. He's always trying to give us grace, but he gives us grace, particularly guarantees us grace in the sacraments. 
But does grace happen, does it change you automatically? Like, in other words, if I just walk up to communion, or if I, like, steal some communion out of the tabernacle (laughs) because I didn't study for my test and I really want to get a good grade, and I think, I'll just use some of that sacramental grace that's in that tabernacle and I'll steal it, and then I'm automatically going to be really smart or good. Does it work like that? It's not like manna in a video game or something. (laughs) It's not automatic. It requires us to cooperate with it. So some of these questions in the, in the quiz, like if a person goes to confession but they're not really sorry and they intend to continue sinning, they don't actually receive God's forgiveness. Is that true or false? True. True. You have to be sorry in order to receive forgiveness. That's just how you cooperate with that grace. It's still a gift to be forgiven, but I can't just get it magically or automatically without doing my part to cooperate with it. What about this one, if a person, number 11, if a person gets married, but he never t- intends to be faithful to his spouse, he's not actually married, true or false? True. True. You're not actually married unless you intend what you're saying. You have to cooperate with the grace. It's not automatic by using these magic words. Okay, so let's just walk through the the seven sacraments. What are the effects of these sacraments? What are the graces that you get? Baptism. You're freed from sin, both original sin and your personal sin. So you're you're, uh, washed clean of this stain of Adam and Eve's first sin. But also, if you get not uh, baptized as a baby, but rather as an adult, do you need to go to confession before you're baptized to get your sins forgiven? No. Baptism washes them away. So it's kind of a nice deal. This baby is also adorable, by the way. <laughs> You're reborn as a child of God. So are you born a son of God? Are you born a daughter of God? No, you're reborn. So this is kind of, this is kind of a controversial thing, because you could say, are, are, say, Muslims children of God? Right, you... It sounds kind of offensive to say no, right? But if you told a Muslim, um, you're a son of God, they might say, like, what do you mean by that? I'm a creature of God. Like, I believe that God, Allah, is all-powerful and is one, and we're his creatures, and Muhammad is his prophet. But what's this about being children of God? It's almost blasphemous. Yeah, what are you saying? You're God? But that is kind of what we're saying. When, you become, when you're baptized, you become part of God you get his name. You're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Every time you walk into a Catholic church, you dip your finger in the holy water and bless yourself, saying, like, I belong here. I'm part of God's family. I'm part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, which is pretty radical. It's not just like, oh, yeah, we're all children of God. Isn't that nice? No, it's something that's totally transformed who you are. Your identity is different now because you're baptized. And also, you become a member of Christ meaning part of his body and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're incorporated into the church so you become all of those things at the moment of your baptism confirmation you're more perfectly bound to the church and you receive a special strength of the Holy Spirit confirmation is basically a sealing of your baptism it's, it's the um, usually I mean, like technically it's the second of the sacraments of initiation, even though it's normally done third. Normally, don't we do it baptism and then seven years later, Eucharist, and then probably when you're like 13 or 14, you get confirmed. 
But actually, baptism is connected to confirmation is connected to baptism, not to Eucharist. So it connects you to the church, which is why the why the bishop is the one that usually gives it, is because he's a he's a successor of the apostles. He's a representative of the entire church, so he gives you this special sealing. The Eucharist, obviously, the Eucharist is. The Eucharist is unique among the sacraments in that it not just symbolizes Jesus or gives us the grace of Jesus, but it is Jesus. You know, once the Eucharist has been consecrated, it remains the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, the real presence. So we reserve the Eucharist in the tabernacle, we genuflect to it, we light a little red candle to remind everybody Jesus is in the building. Okay, so it is Jesus. But receiving it, receiving Jesus in the Eucharist, nourishes our union with Christ. It strengthens us in charity, separates us from sin. So this is, this is one thing. If you commit a venial, meaning not mortal sin, um, and go to communion, um, you are absolved of that sin. Right? You, usually at the beginning of Mass, it, there's always uh, brothers and sisters let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. In those moments, or before Mass even starts, and then at that moment, you're supposed to recall all as best you can your sins because in receiving holy communion you're actually absolved of those sins now if you commit a mortal sin what do you need to do to get that absolved another sacrament namely reconciliation or confession and then it manifests and affects the unity of the church sorry So there's an old phrase in St. Augustine, the Eucharist, the church makes the Eucharist, meaning the church consecrates the Eucharist, but the Eucharist makes the church. So you are what you eat. The church is the body of Christ. The church makes the body of Christ, receives the body of Christ, becomes the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Reconciliation. This is the Pope going to confession, by the way. Kind of a cool photo. Reconciliation gives us reconciliation with God and return to the state of grace, meaning you return to the state you were at when you were baptized. You are back in sacramental grace. If you've left the state of grace by sinning, by, by mortally sinning, committing some sin that's particularly grave, then going to confession returns you to the state of grace. It's like a second baptism. Reconciliation with the church. Remission of eternal punishment incurred by sin. So in other words, if you go to confession and confess all your mortal sins that you can remember before you die, and then you die, you're going to heaven. You might have to go through purgatory first, but all your eternal punishment for sin is remitted. There's no chance of you going to hell if you confess with a clean conscience all your mortal sins before you die. Remission in part of temporal punishment for resulting from sin. Temporal punishment would be like your punishment in purgatory, for instance, or your punishment on earth. So, for instance, if I commit a, the sin of fraud, if I steal a bunch of money um, and I go to confession... The eternal consequences of that sin are forgiven. God forgives me. I'm not going to go to hell for stealing money as long as I confess with a good conscience. But I might still go to jail. You know what I'm saying? So that's the temporal effects. That's the effects in time. Eternally, God's forgiven it. But there are temporal effects. There are consequences to my actions. Not just in the world, but also to my soul, which is why purgatory exists. So like if I have a habit of sinning, 
where I'm attached to a particularly sinful thing, even though I'm sorry and I confess it and God forgives it, I still need to be like somewhat detached from that sin, either in this life through suffering and discipline or through the next life in God's purifying fire. Yeah, JC? Like penance, yeah. So Lent is, is kind of trying to detach us from sin by spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer, abstinence from meat on Fridays, almsgiving. Those acts of penance are supposed to detach us from sin. But reconciliation does that partly. Peace and serenity of conscience and spiritual consolation. If you've ever gone to confession and you just felt awesome afterwards, that's that special grace. An increase of spiritual strength for the Christian battle. Anointing of the sick, this is probably one that you haven't experienced. Has anyone ever seen anointing of the sick done? Oh, good. Loved ones, or have you received it yourself? Um, for Lord's Mass, they were given. Does that count? Yeah. I mean, if it was the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Usually it's done, as a priest, I've normally done it in hospitals. Like if people are dying, or before they go into surgery, or if they're ever in danger of death, they are welcome to receive anointing of the sick, which is basically an anointing with a special consecrated oil on the forehead, and on the hands, as well as a, a formula of prayer, a formula of the sacrament, which is, um, I can't remember it, I always have to read it out of the book. But it's basically uniting the sick person, the suffering person, to the suffering Christ. So Christ, just as his crown of thorns pierced his forehead, this person's anointed with oil on the forehead, just as the nails went through his hands, so that the person is anointed on the hands, and they're united to Christ in his suffering, and so it gives their suffering meaning, and in certain cases will... Um, relieve that suffering, get, cure the person, or at least um, forgive their sins and give them inner healing. Okay, holy orders. This is a part of the... Uh, what, do you, what do you notice about this photo, by the way? This is, there's a lot hidden in this. There's a lot of hidden stuff in this photo. This is part of the ordination mass called the prostration when the, it's the litany of the saints is sung and all the candidates for holy orders, those who are going to be either ordained a deacon or a priest, uh, lay prostrate on the ground with their face down while the people pray for them. So are these guys being ordained priests or deacons? Can you tell? Deacons? Who votes, who votes priest? Who votes deacons? It's a little bit of a trick question. They're going to be ordained priests, but they are deacons. So you, to be ordained a priest, you must first be a deacon, which is why they're wearing deacon stoles. But they haven't yet been ordained. This is before the ordination part of the Mass. This is the prayer before ordination, the litany of the saints. So you, that's why they're still wearing their deacon stoles. What's hanging on the rail back behind them? They're, those are their priestly vestments that they're going to be vested with after they're ordained. So that's just like a little bit of trivia. But the effect of holy orders, obviously, is the indelible character to act in the person of Christ, especially in the celebration of the Eucharist and the absolving of sins in confession. So this is a special vocation within the vocation of being baptized, being a son of, or daughter of God. Certain men are called then to act in the person of Christ, the head, by celebrating the Eucharist and by forgiving sins, basically participating in the apostles' vocation. Um, in, in distributing the sacraments. The sacrament to give the sacraments, in other words. All right, and then lastly, marriage. So marriage is a beautiful sacrament, but it's, it pre-existed 
the church, didn't it? Marriage wasn't instituted by Christ, but marriage was given a new meaning by Christ uh, by his life and, and his death. Um, St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says that uh, husbands love your wives as Christ himself loved the church. In other words, he laid his life down for the church. He died for her. So man and woman are supposed to lay their lives down for one another. So Christian marriage is not just um, the institution that's existed since Adam and Eve and under Roman law it had certain, uh, you know, or Jewish law. There were certain laws of marriage and divorce and all the rest of it. It's still all of those things. It's, it's the basis of the family. It's the fundamental unit of society. But now in, in the Christian understanding, if you're baptized and you get married, that marriage is a sacrament and therefore reflects and symbolizes and makes present the love of Christ. So actually, this part of the, ma- this part of the marriage sacrament is not... These, these two people are already married because after the wedding vows are exchanged, usually two Catholics, if they're getting married, will have a mass. And I think this, this photo is really cool because... Um, what does the priest say right before he elevates the host? He says, uh, this is my body which will be given up for you. Okay, so that's what marriage is. The priest gives up his body in celibacy and, and uh, in lending his voice to Christ in the sacraments by saying, this is my body given up for you. Christ gives his body on the cross. Christ himself is not married, but he's married to the church, so to speak, by laying his life down for her. So the husband and wife are supposed to reflect the same. So the two vocations are kind of images of one another. Does that make sense? Marriage informs what priesthood should look like, and priesthood informs what marriage should look like. And it's all summed up in the Eucharist. Okay? So I want to just cover this uh, idea of the indelible mark or the sacramental character. So there's three sacraments that you that leave this mark on a person. That's not just a mark during life, but even after death in heaven, you're still going to have these sacraments if you receive them in this life. Do you know what those three sacraments are? Baptism. Baptism. Confirmation. Confirmation. And holy orders. What about marriage? Isn't that, doesn't that leave an indelible mark? It's your whole life, you only receive it once, right? Wrong, because until death do you part. There is no marriage in heaven, Jesus says, right? After the resurrection, God and humanity are, are one. People aren't married anymore. So marriage is a sacrament, in other words, a symbol of Christ's love until you get to heaven and you see the real thing. You don't need sacraments anymore. Okay, but the indelible mark, what it means is if you're baptized, you're another Christ. You and Christ are now one. He became, remember we talked about last time how Jesus saves us? One of the ways is divinization. And it's kind of symbolized in that part of the Mass where the priest pours a little bit of water into the wine before the consecration and says, uh, By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And that's evocative of what's called theologically the marvelous exchange. Christ became poor so that we could become rich. God became man so that man could become God. Life came into death so that we who die could live eternally. So this marvelous exchange is where God becomes one with you, and so you become one with God. And so all the saints are those who have become one with him. 
Alright, so there's this great question in here. Number five, grace allows sinners to go to heaven. True or false? True. Who thinks it's true? Anybody think it's false? Enrique, why do you think it's false? I first wrote true and then I changed it to false. I don't really have an answer. <laughs> it just feels false. Yeah. Good, it's false. Because grace doesn't allow sinners into heaven. Are there sinners in heaven? There are ex-sinners, former sinners, but who's in heaven? The saints, right? So grace changes sinners into saints. We have to cooperate with grace, and it's always a work of God. It's not our own self-perfection. It's not because you're holier than me that you have more grace. It's that God gives us this gift through the sacraments, and if we receive it with faith, it will change us and make us into saints. It will divinize us. It will leave a mark on you. So you can tell a person who's received the sacraments with faith, who's let that grace change them, because they become like Christ. They live like him. They love like him. They, they, they make it obvious that they believe in him by the way they live their life. But that's a gift that's given to them through the sacraments. Okay, so one thing I want to I just finish with this is that um, it takes imagination to understand this. So Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict, is now Pope Emeritus Benedict, uh, wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And he talks all about mainly the Eucharist and, and um, how the Eucharist transforms us from within, how the Eucharist is a uh, foreshadowing of the new heavens and new earth, and basically like how everything through the Eucharist is leading to the new Jerusalem, the final eschaton, the end of history. And that through the celebration of the sacraments, God is becoming more and more all in all. And when we get to heaven, remember there's no need for sacraments. There's not even a need for a temple because God is everywhere and you can see him. That was the whole point of the sacramental economy because I can't get to God, so God has to get to me somehow. So he gets to me through Christ. Christ gets to me through the church. The church gets to me through the sacraments. But in heaven, it's not that way. God has sort of penetrated everything that exists. But he does that through getting to us first. And so one of the things we do that's kind of weird as Catholics, have you ever heard of relics? What is a relic? Like a statue? Kind of. Or like, um, like dead saints or pieces of their body? Yeah, usually a, piece of, a first class relic is like a piece of a bone of a dead saint. Why in the world would we save the bone of a dead saint? Why would we put it in a nice little case? Why would we kiss it and reverence it and put it in altars and all this stuff? What, it's just a piece of bone. What's the deal with that? Why do we do that? Any idea? Because that person, that saint, was so in union with Christ that what we're saying is that they went straight to heaven, basically. They're already beholding God face to face. That they lived in such union with Christ that that's like a piece of God. They were so transformed, they received, not because they are another God, not because they themselves are some independent, powerful being, but because God, they allowed God to penetrate their being so thoroughly through the sacraments and through prayer and through Christian living that that, like, touching a piece of St. Patrick, touching a piece of Mother Teresa is like touching Jesus Christ. It's not one of the seven sacraments, but it's a sacramental. Have you ever heard that? that phrase before, a sacramental. It's not instituted by Christ, but 
That's the whole idea is that God's presence after Jesus is now able to be mediated to us through physical things. So what Cardinal Ratzinger says in this book is that in, in Eden, so remember in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, it says their eyes were opened and that's when they started putting clothes on. So their eyes were opened in a certain way, but they were also blinded in another way. So they, they, all of a sudden they could tell that they were naked. Before they never even realized it because they were so innocent, they, weren't, they, they didn't even know to be ashamed of their naked bodies. But after their sin, now they can see. They're seeing with different eyes. But there's a certain blindness. In other words, they now see the outward reality, but they're blind to the inward reality. I can see your body, but I can't see you. I'm kind of blinded by your body. I'm distracted by it. So I can't, like, you need to cover it up so that I, I'm more able to see that you're a person and treat you with respect. Because it's too tempting if you, if, I, if you don't do that for me to just treat you like a collection of body parts. Okay, so that's, that's the whole thing with Adam and Eve and the shame. But it's true of everything, right? And the, the weird thing is that we kind of take pride in it. I've noticed this in like modern scientific materialist society. You'll hear things like, when I was in biochemistry, you'll hear things like love, what we call love, is just chemicals in the brain. You know, it's just serotonin or dopamine or oxytocin that's like released when you're near somebody that you like. And it's just all evolution. It's two, you know, brains or two uh, genetic sequences that are, you know, good for each other and they're therefore attracted. And the chemicals are just meant to bond you so that you are together at least as long as it takes to rear children and blah. All this kind of like disenchanted, scientific, Mm -hmm. really crude or crass stuff. And we think we're pretty smart because we're not, we don't believe in that old fashioned sentimental love stuff we believe in science you know things you can measure but is that even true like who actually lives like that does do you like get down on one knee and you say will you marry me because of chemicals in my brain nobody actually treats life like that like we are blind to what's really actually real what's actually driving human behavior oftentimes is this spiritual sublime stuff so to have a sacramental imagination to be really catholic you have to have an imagination you have to be able to see the inner reality that you can look at what the world looks like a piece of bread and say that's God that's the God who made me who saved me He's here with me right now, and I'm going to receive him and become him. I mean, that takes imagination. This priest used to say in seminary, he goes, people don't lose their faith because of a lack of evidence, but because of a lack of imagination. There was supposedly a Russian cosmonaut who went up into space, like one of the first people to um, orbit the Earth. And I, I don't know if it was the cosmonaut who said it or some propagandist in Soviet Russia, but they said he got up there up into heaven and he didn't see God so God must not exist and it's like do you really think that's what we meant by God was that you were going to see some old guy with a beard up in the sky in space like that's not what we mean like those images that we might use to evoke God or to illustrate who he is are not like you you're like a little kid going to the North Pole trying to find Santa's workshop and you're like it's not here Santa must not be real like you don't get it You have to have an imagination to understand that these things have a level of truth that you can't see. And so the sacraments are not magic. Magic is like, 
if I make a quarter disappear and it looks like it disappears, but it's not actually disappearing, it's just in my other hand. This, the Eucharist is not like I put a little shroud over the chalice and the bread and I take it out and then it's like some guy's leg and his blood. Like, it's not that I, I did it like, abracadabra, check it out. It's the opposite of that, actually. If you don't have an imagination, if you don't have faith, it looks like nothing is happening. But if you have an imagination, if you're given the gift of faith, then it's everything. It's like the only important thing happening on earth right now. Because it's going to draw you into relationship with God. It's the way that God becomes visible, tangible, sensible to you. So, that's the end. This is a nice painting of heaven. Or at least according to what the book of Revelation says. The lamb standing on the, on the throne, on the altar, and all the people in heaven who have become children of God. And the little baptismal font in the front, you know, like that, on the way up to the altar. But... Any questions? That's pretty much how the sacraments work. Yeah, let's go over the quiz. <laughs> Number one. True. Sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ to give us grace. That's true. Two, grace is God's gift that, help, that helps us to grow closer to him and follow his commandments. True. Three, grace is needed because we cannot go closer to God or obey his commandments by our own efforts. True. True. We need God's grace to be perfect. Four, grace is given to us through Christ and the marvelous exchange. True. 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 Yes? What is the marvelous exchange? I've never heard of it. So that's what we were talking about where God became man so man could become God. Just think of the chalice. <laughs> Just think of the chalice, the, wine, the water going into the wine. The water symbolizes us. The wine symbolizes Christ. And as this, the mystery of the water and wine, which is blended as one, Christ became human, so we become divine. So it's not, like I said, it's not, the, the point of this question is that it's not magic. It's not like receiving a bit of manna and your power goes up every time you receive the Eucharist. You, you become more like Christ by him becoming one with you and you becoming one with him. So really, a, a saint is not a really powerful person. It's a really Christ-like person. A person where it's like you and Christ are almost indistinguishable. Does that make sense? Grace allows sinners to go to heaven. False. 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 Grace turns sinners into saints. When you receive a sacrament, you automatically become more holy. False. False. No, you need to cooperate with grace. It is possible to receive a sacrament and still remain separated from God. True. True. If you, say, are in a state of mortal sin, um, you need to cooperate with grace by going to confession and then receiving the Eucharist, but... You can still be separated from God even if you objectively receive a sacrament. I feel like I, I didn't go to confession before I was confirmed. And I feel like I didn't receive the grace of that sacrament until I finally went to confession. And then it was like, the whole grace of my confirmation just blew me over. Level up. Level up. It's possible if a person has no faith, even if they receive a sacrament, Jesus is still present and offering them grace. True. True. If a priest has no faith, the sacraments he celebrates are not effective. True. Mm, what do we think? <laughs> if I don't believe in the sacraments, but I still celebrate them the way that the church asked me to celebrate them, is it still... So if, if bad priest is celebrating a mass, does good person in the pew 
suffer because he's a bad priest? It's not actually the Eucharist? No. no, right? God is the one who guarantees it's the Eucharist. So even if that priest is a failure, a bad person, or doesn't have faith, right? That's still the Eucharist is guaranteed by Jesus, not the priest. If a person goes to confession, but they are not really sorry, and they continue, they intend to continue sinning, they don't actually receive God's forgiveness? <clears throat> what if you are sorry, but you know that you're probably still going to sin again because it's hard? Are you still forgiven? Yeah. yeah, you just need to intend to amend your life. Even if you know that you're weak and this sin is particularly tempting for you, you're, you're still forgiven. But it's those who are obstinate and they say, you know, I'm in a life situation that's objectively sinful, but like I'm living with my girlfriend or something and we're having sex before we're married. I'm, you know, I want to get forgiven for it, but I'm not going to change. Like, I'm not going to move out. Or I'm not, you know, well, then you're not sorry and you don't intend to, like, if I am punching you in the face, I'm like, hey, sorry, but I still keep punching you in the face. It's not like, what's it mean that I'm saying sorry? Nothing really. If a person gets married but never intends to be faithful to his spouse, he's not actually married. True. Okay, so there's, there's, certain things that are necessary for a marriage to be valid. One is that you intend to be faithful. One is that you intend it to be permanent, in other words, until death. And one is that it, you intend it to be fruitful, in, in other words, open to children. But if you intend from the beginning of your marriage to neither be faithful or that at some point if I fall out of love, I'll just get divorced, like I don't intend for this to be a permanent bond, or I, you know, I'll be married to you till we die, but I don't want any children, so we're going to use contraception the whole time and we're not going to have any babies one of those three things, if you intend them, makes the marriage invalid. And so there's no Catholic divorce, obviously. You can't get divorced. Once you're married, you're married, and you can only be married to one person. But if you contracted an invalid marriage, you can get what's called an annulment. Have you ever heard of that? But you have to prove, or someone has to prove, that there was some defect of intention from the moment you were married. Not that later you fell out of love and you cheated on your spouse, or later you decided, I don't really think we should have children, but that when you said in front of, the, in front of God and the church, I intend to be married to you forever, for life, open to children until the day we die, if you didn't actually mean it when you said it, then you're not married. Does that make sense? Nicole? What if someone <coughs> intends to not have children, but then has children? Then changes their mind? Yeah. That, it gets complicated. That's why there's people called canon lawyers, and they, that's their job is to figure that out. Good question, though. Very good question. One must take a class before receiving a sacrament, because if you don't understand the sacrament, its grace will not affect you. Case in point, the baby. If you miss Mass on a Sunday or a Holy Day of Obligation, you should not receive Holy Communion again until you have confessed. True. True. So it would be considered grave matter to intentionally miss Mass on a, on a Sunday or a day of obligation. Sunday is a day of obligation. <laughs> but other, other holy days, like, say, the Annunciation or the Immaculate Conception or Christmas or something like that, these days that we're obligated, as long as we are able and a Mass is available and we're not deathly ill, then obligated to go to Mass. All right. Oh, go ahead. What about old people that want to get married? What about them? 
children. I, I think the easy way to understand it is that's why we say open to children. Okay, so it's not that you, you must be able to have children. It's that you must not be doing anything that by nature is contraceptive. In other words, opposed to life. JC? Yeah, so he says, uh, as the Pharisees bring him the question, uh, no, it's the Sadducees, because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so they say, um, or is that a separate if thing? Had seven, there was seven brothers, and then whose wife is she, that one? Yeah, 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 there's that. No, but I'm mixing those up. So your question, JC, is when they say, can we get it, Moses allowed the, us to get a bill of divorce and divorce our wife and get married to somebody else, can we still do that? And Jesus says, no, um, it's because of the hardness of your heart that he allowed this. Um, that you can't, that whoever divorces and remarries commits adultery, basically. Um, so your question, yeah, so divorce is not necessarily a sin if there's a just reason for it. Right? You can't just abandon your spouse because you, you feel like it. But if you're, if you're being abused, for instance, or you've been abandoned yourself, someone just, your wife or your husband just left you, that's not on you. You're not in a state of sin. But you are still married to that person unless you've gotten an annulment and you've proven that something was defective about this marriage and it was never really valid in the per- first place, so I'm still free to marry because I never was validly married. But if you were validly married, even if that marriage fell apart for some reason, even a reason that's not your fault, you can't just go ahead and marry somebody else. You literally can't be married to two people at the same time. You can't. Um, and there's no, there's no Catholic divorce. There's no like, oh, we're not married anymore because we got a document or something like that. Even if civilly, you can do that. So a lot of times people get confused by this by saying like, oh, I'm divorced so I can't go to communion. No. If you are remarried and living in a marriage that's not a valid marriage, um, then you can't go to communion until you've confessed or regularized your situation, gotten an annulment, gotten married in church, whatever. But if you're just divorced and you live by yourself, then you can go to communion. Does that answer your question? All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.